0: Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 55 called Attila's Bride. We heard in the last episode how, according to the Roman writer Priscus, who's left us with the only eyewitness account of the great hun, he differed very much from the bloodthirsty tyrant of legend. He was modest in his behaviour, drinking from wooden cups and plates and respectful to his followers, toasting their health. I think... Priscus's demolition of the conventional Attila legend is finally sealed by his description of him as «particularly clean and tidy». But while Attila may have been all of these things, he was also a driven man. This is shown in another interesting insight left to us by Priscus about a legend concerning the discovery of a sword that signalled he would be the conqueror of the world. The story goes that a sword was found by a herdsman following a trail of blood left by a wounded heifer, which the animal had trodden on. Quote, he dug it up and took it straight to Attila. Attila rejoiced at this gift, and since he was majestic, he thought he'd been appointed ruler of the whole world, and the sword of Mars had granted him omnipotence in war. End quote. So it seems that in his own lifetime, a legend developed around Attila that he had been chosen to lead the Huns to greatness, a bit similar to the story of Arthur and the sword in the stone. Priscus's mention of the widespread popularity of this tale suggests that Attila had carefully nurtured it to strengthen his reputation, and there's no surprise in that. Attila would have been no stranger to the modern PR concepts of branding. To rule the hitherto disparate and lawless Huns must have required a strong personal brand that inspired both fear and respect in equal measure. The fact that after his death his empire broke up fairly rapidly attests to the power of his personality and reputation. I think what Priscus's writings tell us is that like most great dictators, Attila was not just a warlord, but also a skilled performer and political operator. So, to get back to where we left off in the last episode, you recall that in 449, Attila had sent his ambassadors to Theodosius II to throw at his feet the empty bag of gold which had contained the bribe for his assassination. Theodosius and his minister Chrysaphius were quick to make amends. They dispatched another embassy laden with gold to placate Attila. The Hun leader was willing to be placated, and it looked as if the Theodosian court could relax. But six months later, in July 450, everything changed – Theodosius, then in his late 40s, was out riding when his horse threw him. He suffered a serious spinal injury and died two days later. This marked the end of the Theodosian dynasty in the East. Theodosius had no son to succeed him, and his cousin Valentinian III in the West was therefore entitled to inherit the throne and unite the two halves of the Empire but Valentinian, true to his uninspiring Theodosian heritage, did nothing. However, Theodosian women were normally far more forceful than their male relatives, and Theodosius' elder sister, Elia Pulcheria, was quick to seize this opportunity to reassert her own authority. Pulcheria had dominated her brother for the first half of his reign, but had lost her influence over him when he'd fallen under the spell of his wife Eudocia, who had originally been Pulcheria's protégé. Pulcheria and Eudocia, originally such good friends became enemies, and Eudocia was even accused of giving her brother a contract to sell his wife into slavery, which he, in his usual absent-minded manner, signed, only for his furious wife to tear it up later. But a few years on, their marriage became unhappy and relations between Eudocia and Theodosius soured to the point where they separated and she moved to Jerusalem. Theodosius never remarried and spent the rest of his life under the sway of his eunuch minister Chrysaphius, the one who'd set up the plot to assassinate Attila. With Theodosius' death, Pulcheria now stepped forward and agreed to marry a Roman army officer in his late 50s called Marcion so that he would become the new emperor. Marcion himself was an unremarkable figure, according to one source, a tall man with lank grey hair and swollen feet. But he was well-liked in military circles and had the support of the two main generals in the eastern army, Zeno and Aspar. They were now the two most powerful men in the empire and they quickly removed Theodosius's eunuch minister, Chrysaphius, and had him executed. At long last... The Eastern Empire was free of the enervating grip of the Theodosian dynasty, which had done so much harm to the Romans. Marcion quickly proved he was a capable emperor. His military background meant that he was a man of action with experience of real life, unlike the previous emperors who'd been brought up in the artificial world of the palace. The only problem with the marriage was that Pulcheria had taken a vow of chastity 37 years before. However, Marcian accepted theirs was to be a platonic relationship. Coins were struck, showing the two of them shaking hands. And in a unique gesture of feminine power in front of the assembled ranks of legionaries in Constantinople, Pulcheria crowned Marcian emperor and placed a purple cloak on his shoulders. It was the first and last time that a woman crowned a Roman emperor. However, women would continue to dominate Roman politics that year. For just a few months before Marcion was made emperor in August 450, Valentinian III's sister, Honoria, had booked her place in history by sending Attila a request to save her from a marriage arranged by her brother. He wanted her to marry a Roman senator called Herculanus, whose main attributes were inherited money and a lack of ambition. Honoria's response was that he might be called Herculanus, but he did not exactly look like Hercules. Honoria had always been a feisty sister. She'd taken various lovers and had got pregnant with one of them, whereupon Valentinian had sent her to Constantinople to give birth out of the limelight. There she was, no doubt, scolded by the virtuous Pulcheria who'd taken the vow of chastity. Indeed, this may have been the humiliation which drove her to the extreme recourse of contacting Attila. She sent her servant, a eunuch called Hyacinthus, to Attila's camp on the Hungarian plains, just as Priscus had journeyed there the previous year. Roman eunuchs tended to be overweight and have high-pitched voices, so we can only guess at how the stern-faced Attila and his battle-hardened warriors might have reacted to this entreaty, perhaps struggling to stifle their laughter. Hyacinthus told the Huns that Honoria was being forced into a marriage against her will and that she'd pay Attila gold if he would stop her brother from behaving so cruelly. As a sign that this was a genuine request, he gave the Hun warlord Honoria's signet ring. There can have been few embassies like this before and Attila must have wondered just what the Romans were up to, and whether this was another of their bizarre attempts to assassinate him, perhaps this time by entreating him into some sort of trap. It's to his credit he quickly spotted a political opportunity. He told Hyacinthus that not only would he like to help the distraught princess, but he would like to marry her himself. He said that he accepted her ring as an engagement for their marriage and that he would now wait to hear from his new fiancée about their wedding plans. Hyacinthus returned to Ravenna, no doubt troubled by what had happened. The news of his secret mission quickly leaked out. Not surprisingly, Valentinian was appalled. The unfortunate eunuch was hauled before the Emperor, where he confessed under torture to what he'd done, and was then beheaded. Valentinian was not in a mood for frivolities. He told his sister to pack her bags and to join her new husband. Honoria protested that had never been her wish and she'd only wanted her brother to treat her better. She agreed to marry Herculanus or even go to a convent. Valentinian insisted that this time she'd gone too far and that she must now join Attila. At that moment, their mother, Galla Placidia, intervened to protect her daughter. She told her son to behave himself and allow his sister to stay. Valentinian could stand up to his sister, but not his mother. Honoria was allowed to stay and marry Herculanus. The court at Ravenna must now have been quietly hoping that Attila had a short memory, or that perhaps he'd been joking. But their hopes were dashed when a couple of months later in the autumn of 450, a Hunnic delegation arrived at Ravenna saying they'd come for Attila's bride. Not only did they want to celebrate the marriage, but they had a special message from the great Hun. Honoria's dowry was to be half the Western Empire, although there's no record of precisely which territories Attila wanted. Priscus has recorded Valentinian's strange reply, expressing his surprise at Attila's request. The emperor said that his sister was now happily married to another man and that men, not women, ruled Rome, so there could never be a dowry like that. The Hun ambassadors must have struggled to conceal their laughter as they told him their master might have a different view and they returned home. More Hunnic ambassadors followed in quick succession. One had Honoria's signet ring, which was given to Valentinian as evidence of his sister's genuine wishes. Again, The Huns were politely told that there had been a huge misunderstanding and that although the Emperor had the greatest respect for the King of the Huns, he really couldn't go along with these suggestions. A final Hunnic embassy arrived in early 451 and delivered a stark message to the Emperor. If he refused to honour his sister's pledge to Attila, then it would be war. Priscus has recorded Attila's laconic wit in his ambassador's communication to the distraught emperor. Through me, the ambassador said, the great Attila, my lord and your lord, has instructed you to prepare the palace for him. It's clear throughout all of this that Attila was having a bit of fun with Valentinian, and Attila was having fun with everyone. At the same time that he dispatched his romantic embassies to Ravenna, he also sent an embassy to the new eastern emperor Marcian. There, the Hun delegation told the new emperor that they hoped he would be a good Roman and pay his tribute on time. The reply they got was very different from the one in the West, for Marcion was no Theodosian. According to Priscus, quote, the Eastern Romans said that they wouldn't undertake to pay the tribute agreed by Theodosius, and that if Attila remained at peace, they would give him gifts, but if he threatened war, they would bring against him men and equipment no less powerful than his own. End quote. With this reply, Marcion had thrown down the gauntlet to Attila. The gold tribute was cancelled. There was no gift made to appease the Huns. This was a staggeringly different approach from that of the feeble Western Empire. Marcian was a soldier and had come to power at the instigation of the Eastern Army. The generals Zeno and Aspar were ready for round three with Attila. If the Eastern Empire was taking a tough line with Attila, you're probably wondering what Aetius, the hero of the West, was doing. So far, he's been conspicuous in his absence from our narrative. But That was all about to change. While Attila had been fighting the Eastern Empire as ever, Aetius had been preoccupied with Gaul. This was the part of the empire that he regarded as his own fiefdom. He didn't regard Italy in the same way since it contained the Imperial Court at Ravenna, where the nominal head of the Western Empire, Valentinian III, resided. It's worth emphasising the two halves of the empire could not have been in more different situations. The eastern half was still territorially intact, with a vast empire stretching from Egypt to the Danube. Whereas in the west, Britain, Spain and North Africa had all been lost, half of Gaul was in barbarian hands, and Italy was the only territory that remained holy Roman. The Roman army was also fundamentally different now between East and West. In the East, it was at long last recovering from its catastrophic defeat at Adrianople, three quarters of a century before. It was no longer dependent on German mercenaries, but predominantly made up of the native populations in the Empire, be they Greek, Syrian or Egyptian. The toughest units were now the Azorians and not the Goths, as they had been in the days of Theodosius. The first. However, in the West, it was the exact opposite. The fundamental problem was that the Western Empire had lost most of its tax revenue and simply couldn't afford to finance an effective army. We really don't know exactly what the Western army was like since we hear almost nothing about it from the sources, but that fact is revealing in itself because it suggests Etius's army was a small and unremarkable force. It was probably little more than a handful of the old frontier legions, the Limitanei, and a central field army of perhaps only a few thousand strong. As such, it was probably somewhat similar in size and quality to the army Rome had in its early Republican days, long before it became a superpower. And it was certainly a force wholly inadequate to deal with the dire military situation the Western Empire was in. Coming back to Aetius himself, so far he'd been pretty quiet about Attila's rise to power, although they were said to have great respect for one another. Attila was probably too young to have met Aetius when he was a hostage with the Huns. Aetius would now have been about 60 years old in 451, and Attila around 45. Nevertheless, Attila would have been familiar with Aetius' good relationships with previous Hunnic kings. Despite this, Attila now decided he would strike against Gaul. Why was he interested in Gaul? After all, Honoria was in Ravenna. One reason was the highly fragmented political situation which he thought he could exploit. He already had friendly contacts with two of the major groups in Gaul. The first was the Franks, who'd broken into two groups after the death of their king, whose name is unrecorded. His two sons opposed each other. One joined Aetius, the other joined Attila. In addition, a senior leader of the Bagodi, the Gallic rebels who opposed Aetius, had also joined Attila in 448. Our sources are keen to emphasise that in 450, Attila was trying to sow the seeds of discord in Gaul. He proposed to Aetius a joint attack on the Visigoths, Aetius had used Hunnic mercenaries before against the Visigoths, so this wasn't new. But at the same time, he sent a message to the Visigothic king Theodoric proposing an alliance against the Romans. There's also mention in one source that he was communicating with the Vandal king Geiseric about an alliance against the Romans. But just as Attila faced a determined opponent in the east in the form of the new emperor Marcion, so he was to find that Etius was no pushover. Aetius was a whirlwind of activity. He knew that the Western Roman army, unlike that in the east, couldn't possibly defeat Attila alone. So everything depended on forming a united Gallic front against the Huns. He contacted everyone. Visigoths, Franks, Alans. Burgundians, there's even mention of his trying to secure ties with the Amoricans in modern day Brittany, and even the Saxons in long forgotten Britain. He secured alliances with those Franks who'd already sided with him, the Alans and the Burgundians, who had no love lost for the Huns after the savage attack they'd suffered back in four hundred thirty seven, although they seemed to have forgotten this had been orchestrated by Aetius. But the most powerful group in the whole of Gaul, refused to join him. These were the Visigoths, led by Theodoric. Aetius got Valentinian to write to Theodoric begging him to join with the Romans in resisting the Huns. For the first time, the Roman emperor didn't refer to the Visigoths as vassals or federati, but as equals. Bravest of nations, wrote the emperor, we're well advised to unite against this universal despot who wishes to enslave the whole earth. Meanwhile, by March 451, Attila was ready. A huge Hunnic army, mainly comprising his Germanic subjects, was mobilising. Which way would it go? To fight Marcion and force the Eastern Romans to pay their tribute? no. Attila had decided the Eastern Empire was too strong. There was also little chance Marcion would invade the Hun lands north of the Danube. So he was content to let the Eastern Romans be. Easier pickings lay in the West, or so he thought. Attila had a reputation to live up to. He was, after all, the conqueror of the world. Now Gaul was his target. It was time to do battle with Aetius. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And if you want to hear more about the Romans, please sign up to my newsletter at nickholmesauthor.com. I'll send you short articles about Roman history from time to time designed to lighten your day. Just click on the link in the podcast app you're listening to right now. All you need to do is put your email in. And next week, we'll find out what happened when Attila invaded Gaul. Thanks for listening and see you next time.